0: Um, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus 15. If you've not already done so, uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 to 21. I've entitled the sermon, The Songs by the Sea. and The key words for our worshipers in training are sing, power, and deliver. Today we are beginning a, a new series I'm uh, naming, uh, And They Sang. We'll be looking at a number of different songs recorded for us in Scripture uh, over the coming months, kind of a Sunday here and a Sunday there as I have opportunity to fill the, the pulpit. Um, and in this series, while we won't cover uh, every song uh, recorded for us in the Bible, uh, the book of Psalms, after all, is 150 songs in and of itself. Um, while we won't look at every one, I do want to to cover uh, a A lot of the the major songs um, that are recorded for us uh, throughout the, um, the course of biblical history. Singing has always held a special place in the lives of God's people. And my hope is to warm the affections of our hearts for Christ as we consider many of the songs of God's people that are found in Scripture and to learn from them that our love and appreciation for songs and for singing would increase. And so today and next Sunday, we'll consider our first two sermons in this series, uh, two songs of Moses, one here in Exodus 15 and another in Deuteronomy 32. What comes to mind when you hear the word singing? Do you like to sing? Do you not like to sing? Are you a good singer? Or does your singing sound more like a cat being set on fire and thrown down a flight of stairs? What about singing in church together? Is that strange for you? Or did you show up today expectant and eager to join with the saints of God in songs of praise? Were you thankful for the teaching that you just received from your brothers and sisters in Christ as they sang words of truth to you from their hearts? What was your experience like just a few minutes ago when we sang together? Did you sort of let loose and sing heartily to the Lord or timidly whisper-sing? Because you don't really want anyone to hear you singing. Maybe you are or have been completely disinterested in singing, and so you, you didn't really sing at all. I imagine that some combination of, of these thoughts, these feelings, uh, and, and probably others, represent us this morning. So my hope, as, as I mentioned in this series, is pretty straightforward. If you love to sing, I pray that you would come to love it even more and understand its place in our lives even better than you do now. If you could take singing or leave singing or are altogether offended by it, I hope that you come to see it as an integral part of your life, both your personal life and your corporate life among the people of God. And that you find yourself drawn into the beauty of song and learn to sing with all your heart. And so given the possibility of the varying opinions that we may have on the subject, I want to lay down a quick groundwork along these lines about why we sing. Uh, we won't list all the reasons, but I'm to list a few about why we sing before we look at our passage. Um, one reason, first... We sing because we are commanded to sing. In Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, we are commanded to sing. To teach and admonish one another in song. We sing second because singing is a God-ordained means to proclaim the truth. This is very related to that first point. We're commanded to sing because... In that, we proclaim truth. We teach and admonish one another. Singing is for truth-telling. A third reason we sing is that it permits us to engage the truth with our emotions at a level that prose often just doesn't. In the preface to his commentary in the Psalms, Calvin, John Calvin writes, There is not an emotion of which anyone... Can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit here has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. And so there is a depth of soul that we can express in singing that often we can't with regular speech. The fourth reason we sing is because it builds and preserves unity. We aren't called to sing as isolated individuals, but as a community of faith. We sing together, in the Lord, teaching and admonishing one another. Maybe you've experienced that here, or if you've ever been to a conference with, with thousands of other people, have you ever sat back for a moment and just listened to the saints of God singing together praises to God. There's something particularly special about listening to a room full of people singing to God. So, we will, I want to consider these issues and others as we progress through the series, but we'll, we'll leave off the introduction here and turn to our text, which I doubt needs much introduction. Exodus 15, um, just following the exodus from Egypt. God has just delivered Israel from their bondage in Egypt, and Pharaoh's army has been drowned in the sea, the Red Sea, as they pursued God's people who had just passed through the sea on dry ground. We read in uh, fourteen Exodus 14, verse 30, "...thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord." and in his servant Moses. And then we see in chapter 15, verse 1, that the people, led by Moses, sang. They had just experienced one of the greatest acts of redemption that the world has ever seen, and their very first response is to sing. And so as we look at this Song of Moses, there are three major themes that I want us to consider from these words in verses 1 to 18. Uh, first, in verses 1 to 10, we see that the Lord is a man of war. Second, in verses 11 to 12, we see that there is absolutely no one equal to God. Third, in verses 13 to 18, we see that we see the triumph of God's people and the trembling of His enemies. So let's consider verses one to 10, our first point that the Lord is a man of war, and I'll read them now. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, "I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song." And He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waves piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle to imagine there are many songs with this kind of content ruling the airwaves in Christian radio today. And upon first thought, that might... Seemed to make sense. I thought Jesus, after all, was the Prince of Peace. Well, he is. But as Moses tells us here, he is also the one who is glorious in power and shatters his enemies with his right hand. Let's be honest. This language can be difficult for us to handle. I think in part, it's because for so long we've been buying the lie that God's primary attribute is that He is nice. Honestly, I'm not even sure what nice means anymore, I don't think. God is kind. God is compassionate. God is loving. God is love. But God is also just and he's a fierce warrior who will not tolerate insurrection and will not overlook forever the abuse of his people, the abuse his people suffer. God, the just judge of all the universe, has finally come down in judgment on the oppressors of his treasured possession here. He's delivered them from the hand of the enemy, and so his people sing. These are strong words coming on the heels of a very intense situation. God has just gotten through raining down ten vicious plagues upon the Egyptians until they finally let Israel go. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. He decides to hunt Israel down as they fled Egyptian bondage. And as He pursues them, Israel ends up caught between Pharaoh and the perils of the Red Sea. And they begin to despair. But then God delivers them in one of the most er miraculous events in the Bible. We're told He stood between them and the army of Pharaoh, parted the Red Sea, and He allowed Israel to pass through on dry ground. Once they were safely through, The Egyptians pursued them, but the Lord threw them into a panic and eventually buried them under the sea as the raging waters rushed down upon them, sending them to a watery grave. And Moses' song is a song of praise to God because he drowned the Egyptian army. Pharaoh's chariots and his host were cast into the sea. They sunk in the Red Sea. The flood covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. This song is not for the faint of heart. So what do we do with it? What, what, how do we make good use of these strong words for our own souls? What can we learn from this truth that God is a man of war, glorious in power, shattering his enemies with his right hand, consuming his enemies like stubble with the blast of his nostrils? What do we learn? Well, At least two things that I want to mention here. First, we must not dare trifle with God. The Bible is replete with stories of men and women who played fast and loose with the Lord. In addition to the one before us, we may also remember the flood in the days of Noah, where God killed every person on earth except for one family of eight people. We should also ponder the deaths of Nadab and Abihu at the altar when they authored, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. The serpents in the wilderness we find in Numbers that killed a good many of, Is, of the Israelites because of the people's incessant complaining. Those serpents remind us as well how seriously God takes sin. We could also mention Achan's sin at Ai, Saul's sacrifice on the mountain, Uzzah and the Ark, Uzziah's leprous judgment in the temple, Haman's ironic twist of fate by the gallows, the writing on the wall on Belshazzar's last night on earth, Ananias and Sapphira's lethal lies, or Herod's wormy demise. If you're not familiar with some of these stories, trust me, they don't end well for the people who thought they could cheat God. Each of these people took God lightly and they paid the heavy price. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you have struggled to take God seriously. I pray that you would consider the weight of this text this morning. The horse and the rider God has thrown into the sea. Are you mightier than they? What does God think of our rebellion? What keeps us from falling into the pit of hell this very moment? Every person in those stories we just mentioned a moment ago, they thought tomorrow was coming. They assumed they had at least one more day. They believed that God would surely continue to overlook their sin and probably just, in the end, forgive them. And then one day, without warning, their sins were brought down on their heads once and for all. They could not escape. Will you? Well, The second major theme found in this song is that of God's supremacy in all things, particularly over the false gods of Egypt. We read in verses 11 and 12, Who is like You, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like You, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out Your right hand, the earth, Swallowed them. Uh, Pastor Nick literally just preached an entire series on idolatry uh, that he just finished last week, so I won't belabor this point too much. But here's what I think we should say about it this morning Who is like our God? Who is like God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? A helpful backdrop to this question, uh, and the Exodus story as a whole, is to have a working knowledge of some of the idols of the Egyptians. Have you ever wondered why the ten plagues are the ten plagues? Why turn water into blood? Why overrun the place with frogs, gnats, and flies? Why destroy all the cattle? Why send boils and hail and lightning? Why locusts? Why complete darkness? Why kill the firstborn? Uh, you know, when you add them all up, it kind of makes sense. It seems like just total destruction. Some of them seem maybe repetitive or whatever. Um, some of them make sense that they're pretty, they're pretty heavy things. Some seem random. Uh, you know, I hate, I hate gnats and flies as much as the next guy, but, but is there something particularly significant about them? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the ten plagues, God appears to defy and defeat the so-called gods of Israel's oppressors, the Egyptians. Now, I think it's important that we admit that there's there's not really a clear and perfect one-to-one plague to false god scheme to be found here. There are some very significant correlations between the plagues hurled upon the Egyptians and the various deities that they served. Uh, we won't name them all, but here are a few of the more likely suspects. Uh, the frogs probably represent God's supremacy over the false god Heket, goddess of birth with a frog head. The death of the livestock may demonstrate God's triumph over Hathor, goddess of... With, she had a cow head and an apis, the bull god, a symbol of fertility. The plague of darkness seems to demonstrate God's defeat of Ra, the sun god. The death of the firstborn is likely a defeat over several deities such as men, goddess of reproduction, Isis, goddess who protected children, Heket, whom we've already mentioned, and even Pharaoh himself. And so whatever we make of the correlation between specific plagues and specific deities of Egypt, uh, we're really not left in the dark about the intention of the plagues overall. In Exodus seven four, we read, "I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them." In Exodus nine fourteen, we read God's words to the Pharaoh. I will send my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. So I do believe that there's likely specific intention behind the content of each plague. The overall thrust of the plagues is undeniable. And this is the conclusion that Moses reaches in our text. Who, O Lord, is like You among the gods? There is none like You. You stretched out Your hand, and the earth swallowed them. And so for us, we must ask, are we trusting in some false god this morning? Are you trusting in a false god this morning? Is He mightier than Ra or men? Maybe. But will his fate be any different than theirs when the sovereign Lord of all the earth comes in judgment? No. And neither will anyone who trusts in a false god fare any better. Well, a third uh, and final major theme found in this song, At the Sea, is that of triumphing and trembling. We see that God's people triumph and God's enemies tremble. Verses 13-18. through 18. We read, You have led in Your steadfast love the people whom You have redeemed. You have guided them by Your strength to Your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Forever and ever. And so here we see two basic things. First, we see that God's steadfast love remains with his people and he gives them the victory. He will make them pass by the day of terror and place them on his mountain. For all who have put their trust in him, who have cast themselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he will bring us to his home, his sanctuary, where we will reign where He will reign forever and ever, and we with Him. Believer, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God is for you? Do you know that God will never leave you? I know many of you have suffered very difficult circumstances in your lives. I know some of you are suffering Tremendous hardships at this present moment. Take these words to heart. God is leading you in steadfast love. God is guiding you into his heavenly kingdom. No matter how difficult things may be, God has not left you nor will he forsake you. Consider Psalm 48 and verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around her. 12 and following. Walk about Zion, go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Another way that you could translate that last line he will guide us forever is to say he will guide us beyond death. God is a shepherd for you now and a shepherd forever. Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God not even death. And so take heart no matter how bad things get and they can get Pretty bad. God will not leave you. This was Paul's experience, which he describes in Second Timothy four. He says in verse sixteen: At my first defense no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And he concludes the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy is likely the last letter that Paul writes before he's beheaded in a Roman prison. So was he wrong? Did God fail to bring him safely into His heavenly kingdom? No. In the end, God was with Paul and He brought him to Himself through death. And Paul, now with God forever, sets an example for us. Because God will do the same for us. He will bring us to Himself, safely into His heavenly kingdom, to reign forever and ever. We can put our full assurance in God. Israel did not save themselves at any point in this story. At no point was it the might of Israel put on display. They were utterly unable to do anything to save themselves. It was God from beginning to end. Salvation is all of grace. God does not need us, He doesn't need our strength to deliver us. He's capable to save us all on His own, and so He does. And he will. Now, these verses also convey an important word to the unbeliever. As the peoples look on God's deliverance of his own people with his strong arm, how do they respond? They respond with trembling. They are seized with pangs. They are dismayed. They melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of God's arm, and they become as still as stone. This is the fate of all who refuse to turn from their rebellion against God. And So if you here in this room someone, if you do not know Christ, consider the awesome and glorious deeds of God told to you this morning. Consider the arm of His might and know that you cannot escape it. God's arm will either be your greatest protection from the storms of life in the day of wrath, or it will come down on you with unspeakable might and crush your very life. But it's not too late. Who's to say that you haven't come here today for this very purpose? That today might be the day of salvation. Perhaps your entire life has been building to this very moment. Everything you've ever thought, said, and done. Everything that has been done to you. All of the good things, all of the bad things, all of the pleasant things, and all of the hard things. Maybe all of it has been preparing you for this moment that you might hear of the mighty power of God. Maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time. Either way, maybe you're here to hear this message and find solace for your soul in the only place you can. In God alone. I pray that you will. Well, the sermon is entitled The Songs by the Sea. So it would be strange if we only talked about one song. There are two here. Because what we see, what we read after Moses and the people sing, we see in verses 19 to 21 For when the horses of Pharaoh with his So I don't have a lot to say here. The Song of Miriam and the Women of Israel serves as a nice uh, inclusio for this section. It, it really it kind of brings us back full circle to how we began. To the first theme we considered. This idea that the Lord is a man of war. We've returned to the description of God's overthrow of the, the, the army of Egypt and the Red Sea and, and the women of Israel again burst into song. And so there's one uh, final point of application I'd like to make here. We need to consider what happened at the Red Sea and remember that God holds each of our lives in his hand. We are here today, and in an instant, we're gone. A quick Google search has made me an expert in all things related to birth rates and death rates, Um, so get ready for some knowledge. If you read Pastor Nick's latest table talk, that would be funny to you. Apparently, over 151,000 people die every day in the world. That means that over 6,000 people have died since our opening call to worship at 11 a.m. If I did the math right, that's more than one person every second of the day. About seven people just breathe their last and are standing before the judge of all the earth. And people ask, why do you sing? We sing because death continues his relentless pursuit of us all. Every moment of every day, he claims another victim, another member of our race. All of us will die one day and stand before the judge of all the earth. And yet, for the believer, death does not have the final say. We sing because our king has conquered death, hell, and the grave and will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. We sing because it reminds us that there is a day coming when there will be no more pain, sorrow, And suffering. There's a day coming when God will right all the wrongs and He will bring us to His mountain home to dwell safely forever. Singing reminds us that we are not alone, that death is a defeated foe. Let's pray and then let's sing.